Please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. The Apostle Paul tells me, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the Word. By God's grace, I will preach the Word to you. I thank God that we have heard in your hearing and my hearing Micah chapter 6 that made a great contrast between bringing sacrifices and offerings and the pure religion of obedience. And then Psalm 115 that mocked the gods of the heathen. And then we heard from our three brothers, Isaiah chapter 1 and Jeremiah 7 and Malachi 4 that did the same thing. Contrasting external ceremonial ritualistic religion with the pure religion of an obedient heart that practices God's definition of righteousness and holiness every day in private. What a difference. And we're going to see that difference here in this event recorded for us in God's Word. By the Lord's leading, we're taking a break from Romans. Before we start the next section, there is a serious division in the book of Romans between chapters 8 and 9. Chapters 9 and 11, 9 through 11 deal with a subject of their own. We have just completed the first half of the book of Romans and its glorious declaration of salvation. My brethren, we've rejoiced in the full promises and assurance of eternal life and the blessings that we have in the Lord Jesus in Romans chapter 8. Daily you receive a Proverbs commentary. You receive a study of a Bible chapter. You receive a thought for the day. I have just finished an important 18-month project of teaching the men Bible hermeneutics, which is the art and science of Bible interpretation. I have just finished three sermons called Never Forget, which is about reminding you to remember God and His Word. But I must remind you that having the Bible, believing the Bible, reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible is not enough. It's only if we obey the Bible that we have pure religion. Do not take comfort in the fact that you are here. Do not take comfort in the fact that I hope before the God of heaven that we are worshiping according to the description given to us in the New Testament of how a church ought to worship. Do not take comfort in the fact that we are worshiping the true and the living God whose name is Jehovah and His Son is the Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing you can take confidence in is if you are obeying that God and putting your trust in Him and you fear Him and He has the power and the authority to dictate how you live in your heart, with your lips, in your home, in on, your, on the job, and in every relationship you have. And you submit to that authority. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, which is given to us to teach us a lesson. The New Testament tells me that the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. The things that were written aforetime, if you're reading Romans 15.4 where those words are given, means the Old Testament. And so we have lessons that we learn from the life of Israel as God's people and God's church under the Old Covenant. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11 tells us they are our examples. They were a church and they made mistakes 
And they paid for those mistakes, and we are to learn from their mistakes so that we don't repeat them. If you fear, or if you doubt, the spirituality of 1 Samuel 4 through 6, you have a spiritual problem. These chapters were given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and I don't know what spirit is moving you. The New Testament, by my beloved brother Paul, said that these chapters have value, and he had this problem in some of the churches of the New Testament. I give you Corinth as an example. He would tell them in the first five verses of their first epistle that they came behind no church in all the gifts they had. And they took great confidence that because they had the Holy Spirit of God equal to or better than any other church in His outward manifestation that they were fine though they were fighting internally among themselves had preacher factions had denied the resurrection of the dead had divorces and remarriages were abusing the Lord's Supper and were one messed up church harboring an incestuous fornicator according to the fifth chapter those were all their problems but they took confidence in the fact that they had so many spiritual gifts. And we have a lesson here. We want to get that lesson. First Samuel chapter 1 is the story of Hannah's desire for a child and the Lord giving her Samuel. First Samuel chapter 2 is the wickedness of Eli's two sons, the priests, and a man of God coming to him and telling him how terrible the judgment's going to be. First Samuel 3 is the word of the Lord to Samuel, the little boy, during the night, who rises in the morning and tells his master Eli what is going to happen to him. And then we come to chapter 4. I read you the first two verses. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines. And they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. Samuel is the new prophet in the nation. And the word of the Lord had come to Samuel. The last verse of chapter 3 tells us that. And the first sentence of chapter 4 tells us that. That God appeared to Samuel by the word of the Lord, so that Samuel had God's word for the nation, and Samuel's word went to the nation. And the nation went to battle, but the nation was hypocritical and living wickedly in their private lives, and God was not with them, and they lost this opening skirmish battle with the Philistines, and 4,000 men were killed. When your personal life is not right before God, bad things are going to happen. And there is no way that you can avoid it. There is no number of locks that you can put on your doors at night if God intends to send a thief into your home. There is no effort you can put in your marriage that God cannot tear up if you do not want to practice Bible, Christianity, and religion. You cannot stave off the judgment of God. 
Moses had taught Israel in the book of Numbers, be sure your sin will find you out. If you, as a married woman, do not treat your husband the way the Bible teaches you to treat your husband, hell and fury are coming into your life. If you're a husband and you don't treat your wife with the tenderness and cherishing that God expects you to, hell and fury are coming into your life. It doesn't matter that you're sitting here this morning. It doesn't matter that you've read your Bible or what you put in the offering box. I've said these things, but I will say them again. It doesn't matter if you move to Greenville. It is personal, practical, private righteousness and holiness that will save your life. It's the only thing that pleases God. It is the only way to achieve the blessing and being increased more and more, you and your children, that we read about in Psalm 115. This nation was not serving God faithfully. And this nation went to battle, and this nation lost 4,000 men. God had promised this nation that when they went to battle, He would be with them and they would win. But their sins had destroyed their power and authority. Their sins had shortened the arm of God so that they lost this battle. Now they come back in verse 3. And when something bad happens to you like this in your life, you should ask this question. But you should do more than ask this question, and you should not do what they did. And one of the keys to these three chapters, and probably the biggest key, is this verse right here, the third verse of the fourth chapter, as we look at 1 Samuel 4 through 6. When the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? That was a good question. Why did we lose the battle today? Why did the Lord let us lose the battle today? Why did the Lord fight for them and not for us? That's a good question. We should ask it. That's self-examination. But their response is horrible. It's the opposite of what it should have been. Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. When something bad happens in your life, or your life isn't looking too bright and too promising, and you say, I'm going to start attending church more. I'm going to start reading the Bible more. I'm going to start praying more. I'm going to start giving more faithfully. You've missed it. You've missed it. That outward performance will not cut it with the Lord. You need to get down on your knees and confess every known sin and ask God by the revealing light of His Holy Spirit to show you every sin you don't know yet. And then to confess those. To repent. To reform. To renovate. To change your life. That is what you need to do. And that is what Israel should have done. Instead of saying, let's bring the ark all the way from Shiloh to the battlefield... Let's bring that little tiny gold box that has the wings with their, that has the cherubim with their outstretched wings on top and where God dwells. 
Let's bring that to the battlefield. Let's have some priests here with the staves on their shoulders holding this little four and a half foot long gold box. That'll save us from our enemies. All in one verse. If you want the lesson of 1 Samuel 4 through 6, it's verse 3 of chapter 4. Have you heard me yet? It doesn't matter if you go to church, if you give an offering, if you read your Bible, if you don't let that Bible dictate how you live, which means how you think, how you treat your spouse, how you treat your children, how you treat your parents, how you treat people on the job, your thought processes, your speech, whether your speech is gracious and kind, merciful and forgiving, whether you love your neighbor, you love your family, you love the church members, all the things that the Bible commands, that is what God wants, and then the Lord will be with you. Then it doesn't matter how many soldiers you put in the field, it doesn't matter how they are equipped, you will win the victory. Sometimes the victories were won in the history of the Old Testament, with the nation of Israel and all their soldiers standing and simply watching as God would cause the enemies of Israel to draw their swords and kill each other. And the, the, the statement from the Lord would be, when he heard a good prayer, a good prayer of confession of sins, and that we have no ability of our own, and that we are not going to presume on bringing the Ark of the Covenant into battle, He would say, stand still and see the salvation of God. And that is what each of you need in your lives. The Lord can speak the word and change everything in your life that needs to be changed. He hasn't promised to change everything because some of the negative things in your life may be very useful in refining you and making you better and bringing Him greater glory. But He is able. And He is able to speak the word today if you would repent of your private sins and not trust in your public worship. He is able to save. And He was able to save Israel. This verse is so key. And when you think of all that we're going to cover before the day is done, the focus I want on the third verse of the fourth chapter. Now I love the whole thing because God loves the whole thing. But as God's ambassador, I want to be fair, and I hope you're already weighing the proportion of things. The proportion of things is on one side of the scale of value this day is Micah, Isaiah 1, Jeremiah 7, and Malachi 4. And on the other side of the scale is Psalm 115. Have you been, are you smart enough to pick up on that yet? I love Psalm 115. And I love what Jehovah did to the Philistines. I love pictures of what he did to the Philistines. I brought one for you. I showed my discretion by not passing it out to everyone. I love mice overrunning a nation. I love Dagon falling down and worshiping Jehovah. I love them setting him back up and him falling down and God chopping off his head and chopping off his hands and leaving his fish stump. Do you even know what Dagon looks like? I brought you pictures, but I showed you my discretion by not putting them in your hands. I love all that, but the message 
is Jeremiah 7. And I thought I would preach it to you through 1 Samuel 4 through 6. Did you hear read to you this morning, Jeremiah chapter 7, Behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. Did you hear it? The temple of the Lord. Did they have the temple of the Lord? Okay. The temple of the Lord. Was it the Lord Jehovah's temple? The temple of the Lord. Did it have the Lord Jehovah's altar? Did it have the Lord Jehovah's priest? Did it have the Lord Jehovah's word being read in that temple? It was the Lord's temple. But they were putting confidence in the Lord's temple that they could live any way they wanted because after all, out of all the nations of the earth, God had given them the temple of the Lord. So they said, we are delivered. We are safe. We will win our military battles. We are delivered to do all these abominations. That was their attitude. Since we're God's people, we have God's temple. This is, the, this is the only place on earth where there's true religion being practiced. We can live any way we want. Behold, ye trust in lying words. And you're trusting in lying words today. If you've come in here out of habit, out of duty to men, out of even duty to God, but you haven't lived appropriately Monday through Saturday in the six days leading up to this assembly. And it's just, it's just as true for me, except ten times more, and I will give an account much greater than any of you, and be not many masters, knowing that ye shall receive the greater condemnation. But I am not going to hold back from preaching to you the whole counsel of God just the way it's given in the Bible. He doesn't care about your outward performance. He wants your inward piety. He wants your holiness. He wants your righteousness. And right here is the key. Why hath the Lord smitten us? Now Moses had told them about military success. Moses told them, if you'll obey me, speaking on behalf of God, if you'll obey me and keep my precepts and my judgments and my statutes, five of you shall put a thousand of them to flight. Is that all he said? No. Did he also say, if you disobey me, five of them are going to put a thousand of you to flight. And does it say in Deuteronomy 32 that there is no way that Israel could ever lose a battle unless their rock had shut them up? Ever read those verses? I'm not going there. There's a thing in the back on the wall that's telling me I can't go there. Are you familiar with it though? Five of them could not chase a thousand Israelites unless their rock had shut them up. Simple here. Simple. What they ought to do. They make a presumptuous mistake in the way that they handled their question. The self-examination is right. Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Why did we just lose a battle to these pagan uncircumcised idolaters? We are the covenant people of God. They asked the right question, but they didn't respond the right way. And you may say, why did God do this to me? Why is this happening in my life? Why why do I have this set of circumstances right now? But don't say to yourself, well, I'm going to start going to church more. That's a good thing, but it's only a good thing if that is tacked on on top of personal repentance and reformation of your life. 
See, we start to think, well, there's 168 hours in a week. Yeah, I can give the Lord five hours from 8.30 until 1.30 on Sundays. I can give Him five hours out of 168. You know, you're not even giving Him 4%. You're not even giving Him, well, it's about 3%. Uh, that doesn't work. doesn't work. He wants your heart and your mind and your life sold out to serve Him. That you're going to think pure thoughts. That you're going to keep ungodly inputs away from you. That you're going to live holy and sober and you're going to follow the Bible. We've all had points in our lives where you're very convicted to want to follow the Bible. Very convicted. Haven't we? And He wants us there. And we, we drift away. We lose sight of it. We get cold. We get calloused. Sin deceives us. It crowds it out. We get into bad habits and we get bad inputs coming in. And pretty soon we're dead, we're dull, we're dry, we're cold. We don't love the Lord anymore. And when we hear somebody that loves the Lord, it's almost irritating to us. There's only one thing to do. Why do I feel like this? Here's what the Lord Jesus Christ would say in Revelation chapter 2. Remember from whence thou art fallen. Remember what it was like when your heart was very tender and you loved me. Remember from whence thou art fallen. Repent. And do the first works. It's just like marriage. Remember what it used to be like. Repent that you have let it slide and go back and do the first things that you used to do to win your spouse. And it's the same way with the Lord. Remember what it used to be like. Repent for letting it slip and do those first works over again. Those first works of delighting in Him, of tearing things out of your life. Have any of you ever burned, broken, or torn up garbage in your life? I mean, literally had an Acts 19 experience where you burn stuff. You know, they burned the books of their witchcraft in Acts 19 or 20 and the price was 50,000 pieces of silver. That's what we need to do. That's how you win battles. That's how circumstances change is real repentance. Oh, they asked the right question. But just to ask the question without repentance is to fret against the Lord. Do you remember God's response to Joshua lying on his face, boo-hooing because they had lost a battle against Ai when they went into Canaan? Do you remember that? I'm not turning you there for the same reason I didn't turn you to the last one. It's Joshua chapter 7. They went up against Ai and they lost about 30 men in the first skirmish with the men of Ai, and Joshua and the elders of Israel fell down on their faces all day long. But God was not impressed, and God was not pleased with their boo-hooing and bellyaching about their loss. The Lord God said to Joshua, What are you doing down there? Get up! There's sin in the camp. There would never be a loss like this if there wasn't sin. I'm not a willy-nilly God that sometimes is just going to punish you with a military loss. I've promised you a victory. But you have sin in the camp. Do you know how bad Joshua got? Do you know what Joshua said? Was Joshua one of the two spies that faithfully reported to Israel 
the grandeur of Canaan and said, we can take it, let us go up at once and take it? Do you know what he said? He told the Lord, we shouldn't even have come into this land. If we're going to have a loss like this, we should have stayed on the other side of Jordan. Now what can make a grown man who's the leader of that nation and who had some of Moses' spirit put on him say something so foolish? The wrong response to self-examination. The right response is always repentance. Repentance means to tell God, I corrupted what you taught me to do, and it did not profit me. I have sinned against the Lord. Forgive me, and I will not do that again, and I'm going to rip out every influence in my life that leads me to that sin. Oh, the Lord loves that. That's a broken and a contrite heart. God will never despise that man, ever. You can go straight in the presence of God that way, and you don't need his ark. All you need to do is say, God, give me the victory over these Philistines, and he probably would have dropped fire straight out of heaven and burned them up. He's just waiting for that. Why don't you do it? Why don't I do it? Why aren't we better at that than we should be? Because the heart is deceitful above all things, our flesh is totally corrupt and hates righteousness and repentance. The world hates righteousness and repentance and says as long as we have an outward show of religion, we're okay. And the devil is throwing you all kinds of ideas and suggestions, distracting you and keeping you from righteous repentance. There's a whole war against us. There's a war against every one of you to keep you from doing what is right. And as long as you allow those enemies to keep you from doing what is right, trouble is coming into your life. Emeralds and mice are coming to a town near you. Emeralds and mice are coming into your bedroom. Let us fetch the Ark of the Covenant. Self-examination is a great thing, and it should lead us to repentance. A presumptuous mistake is made. They think we're just not worshiping the Lord enough. Our outward worship isn't good enough. The Lord's too far away. His ark is way over there in Shiloh. If we bring him here to Ebenezer and take him into battle, we'll win. So they fetch the ark out of its place where it was supposed to be. And they go into battle with the ark of the covenant. Remember the little gold box. That was the place where God dwelt. And inside that box were the two tables of stone that had the Ten Commandments. There was a golden pot of manna to remind them that God had fed them for 40 years in the wilderness. And there was Aaron's rod that budded, proving that Aaron was God's man and that the priesthood came from him and no one else in that little box. And it was the presence of God. See, God's created the universe. And he didn't need a great big box. Because the great big, the little tiny box was just a symbol of his presence anyway. But they took that thing into battle. This is a very valuable lesson. Did I write you recently from Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13? The proverb for yesterday, he that hideth his sins, covereth his sins, shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them, shall have mercy. Do you know what these people needed right now? They needed prosperity and mercy. They needed God's mercy to go into battle with them. But instead of confessing and forsaking their sins, they just thought they'd add a third service to the week's repertoire. Is another service going to get us closer to God? 
you know, if we all had a heart revival, we might call for a, another service in a week. But you want the heart revival first. The extra service isn't going to make the heart revival. And the extra service doesn't really impress God that much. It's the heart revival that, re- that impresses Him and that pleases Him. In Jeremiah 7, it said the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord are these. See, it's plural, so that justifies at least two of them. I hope you don't think that the translators just got carried away there. Maybe they had a little too much from Psalm 104. Their hearts were very merry. And they decided to write the temple of the Lord three times in a row. It's the Lord mocking them, referring to the Holy of Holies the sanctuary and the utter courtyard. Look at it any way you want to. They're, they make it, they use these, referring to a plurality of aspects of the temple. But do you know what these people are saying? The ark of the Lord. The ark of the Lord. The ark of the Lord is this. Verse 4, So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring forth thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So Eli's two wicked sons are the one bringing the Ark. Now that's really good, isn't it? Isn't that a good omen? The Ark shows up, and instead of you looking at the two priests that are with the Ark, that are committing adultery with the women as they come to offer their sacrifices, this is 1 Samuel 2, tells us in detail about them stealing the sacrifices and then committing adultery with the women that came to worship at the tabernacle. So all they can see is the jewel of gold called the Ark of the Covenant, and they miss the two wicked priests around it. And there's a holy God in heaven, and He doesn't care about you sitting in the pew. He cares about your heart, your mind, your speech, your words, your relationships, your television viewing, your book reading, your friends, and everything else you do in your life. That is how he measures you. And that is how he measured Israel. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again. Rang again doesn't mean that it rang like in former days. Rang again means it echoed. It sounded back. It echoed again. The earth had an echo because Israel shouted so loud. What a wonderful text for us. Can we make up for a lack of righteousness by increasing the volume? That is a common procedure today. Let's get the praise band. Let's get great big amplifiers and speakers. And let's crank up the volume. Because anyone that understands anything about music and volume levels, and crowd psychology know, knows what happened in the fifth verse, and they know what happens in these mega churches with their praise bands. 120 seconds or less of smoke on the water by deep purple at 150 decibels at a minimum, and I'm in the Spirit. And so was Israel. Can you look at that verse and realize they were in the Spirit? They were so excited. Crowd psychology. See, it only took Adolf Hitler and a bunch of devils just a few minutes. And those Germans would have done anything that the depraved, ignorant, little scum from the cities of Austria said to them. That's crowd psychology. 
This was crowd psychology. They saw the ark and they shouted with a great shout. They had so much noise. The praise band was so loud. And they were sure God was with them because it was loud. And the crowd was together. And there was a unified shout. There's no difference between this shout and Heil Hitler. It's crowd psychology of the wicked, depraved minds of men who like to follow each other. They're all sheep. And all those German sheep followed their blind shepherd into destruction of their nation. And these blind sheep followed these two priests into the destruction of 30,000 men by putting trust in the Ark of the Covenant instead of the God of the Ark of the Covenant. Do not dare to think that baptism or church attendance or reading the Bible or giving or serving the church or moving to Greenville or any other outward act of worship can make up for compromise in your personal life. It can't. It won't. This was Israel's sin, and you must despise it, or you will lose what you have. They shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again, so that the earth echoed. What a great service. They were so pumped. Can you see them racing to meet the Philistines? That's what happens. You play the music loud enough. Listen, football, spectators in a football stadium with the music loud enough, and now they pipe in amplified rock music. They don't, they don't rely any further on a band out there on a field. Not at any real football stadium. By real, I mean anything bigger than your local town. They have real loud music because they get the fans into a frenzy. Just like a rock concert. Just like Exodus chapter 32, when Moses was on Mount Sinai and Aaron makes a golden calf and Moses and Joshua coming down from Mount Sinai say, what in the world is that noise going on? It sounds like war. And Joshua says, no, or or one of them say, no, I don't think it's war. I think they're dancing and partying. But here we have it. We cannot come into this house And all of us sing louder. This house, let's forget everyone else with their praise bands and amplification of their musical instruments. We come into this house, and though we may design our worship services to be as solemn as we can, and though we may love to sing, and though we lift up our voices and sing loudly, that is not what God is looking for when we come in here. He is looking for a broken and a contrite heart and a humble spirit, that wants to practice His righteousness every day of our lives, not just come in here and mouth the temple of the Lord or the ark of the Lord or these we're the old Baptists. We're all set. This is what the Apostle Paul would say is a chief mark of our generation. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Verse 6 tells us that when the Philistines heard the noise of this shout of the Israelites, they said, what meaneth the noise of the great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? I mean, they heard it as far away as their army was in the field. What is this? And they understood. Their reconnaissance squads came back and said, the ark of the Lord was come into the camp. Now they knew about the ark of the Lord. (laughs) Brethren, that ark of the Lord had stood in the middle of Jordan and stacked up the waters of the Jordan River 
for Israel to come across into Canaan. They knew about the Ark of the Lord, but never had it been on the battlefield with the army of Israel. And so the Philistines were afraid. They had more fear of God than did the Israelites. They were afraid and they said, God is coming to the camp. They weren't worried about the box. They were worried about the God that Israel worshipped. And they said, woe unto us. I love it. I love it. The book of Psalms tells us that our enemies know that there's, there's no rock like our rock. Woe is us. For there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, in verse 8. Who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. They remember. Now this is a couple hundred years later. They're remembering all that Jehovah did to the Egyptians. Be strong, Philistines, and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. Now that's what Israel should have done when the 12 spies came back from Canaan. This is the way that Israel should have talked. This is the way that Christians should talk about joining together against the world in living our Christian lives. But this is the way the Philistines responded to the echo they heard coming from the camp of Israel. Verse 10, the Philistines fought and Israel was smitten and they fled every man into his tent. Remember what I said? Five shall chase a thousand. They fled every man into his tent, the little scaredy cats. There was no courage in them. What happened to all the noise? What happened to the praise band effect? What happened to the crowd psychology? Oh, it it feels so good at the moment. It feels so good at the moment. Until you get out there and face the world, and that frothy, superficial house of cards falls flat. Because there is no sustaining power in it. The only power that will sustain us is the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God only assists those who are living holy and righteous lives. These people immediately turned into scaredy cats and ran away. And ran and hid in their tents, quivering and shaking at the Philistine might. And there was a very great slaughter. For their fellow of Israel, 30,000 footmen and the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were slain, just as God had promised in 1 Samuel chapter 2, that Eli's two sons would be killed in one day, and it was to be a sign from God that he was judging his entire family tree and would cut it off and not leave him a single one that could piss against a wall. Right. No male heirs. He was going to cut off everyone from Eli. Eli was God's priest. But Eli wasn't tough enough as a father. Eli allowed his sons to continue in their wickedness. Though he rebuked them, God said, that is not enough. You should have physically restrained them. And so his family tree was wiped out, even though he was God's priest. Verse 12 tells us, A man of Benjamin ran out of the army and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes rent and with earth upon his head. And he tells the city what's happened. And the city cries out and grieves over it. And Eli heard the noise of the city and wanted to speak to the man. And verse 15 tells us Eli was 98 years old. His eyes were dim. He couldn't see. And the man came in and told Eli what had happened, that he had been in the army, that he fled this day, and that Israel had fled before the Philistines. Verse 17, there had been a great slaughter among the people, 30,000 men killed, and thy two sons are dead, and the ark of God is taken. 
And it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God that he fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck brake and he died. For he was an old man and heavy and he had judged Israel 40 years. At 98 years of age, your bones are brittle. Being a heavy man, he snapped his neck when he fell off his seat at hearing that the ark of God had been taken. He was in Shiloh when he saw that ark taken out of Shiloh and he knew that God hadn't given them permission or direction to do that. He had trembled for the fear of that ark, but he didn't stop it. He should have done everything in his might to stop it, but he was used to compromising and caving in. He had done so with his two sons, and now he didn't stop them. And look what it cost. Now we're up to 34,000 men have lost their lives, and the Philistines have the Ark of the Covenant of the God of Israel. Eli had two sons that were priests, Hophni and Phinehas. Phinehas is married, and his wife is described in the last four verses of this chapter. She was with child, was near to be delivered. She was well along in her pregnancy, but when she heard the news that her husband had been killed, her father-in-law was dead, and the ark of God was taken, she went into hard labor, and the labor was so hard, it killed her. Verse, the middle of verse 19, when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women that stood by her said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast borne a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. She didn't care that she had just had a son. She was dying under the grief and shame and pain of hearing the news with a special emphasis on the ark of God having been taken. And she named the child Ichabod. Ichabod. And thank you, Lord, for putting in our King James Bibles what Ichabod means. The glory is departed from Israel. Because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband, all this, all this grief that came to her at once caused her to go into labor and it killed her. But the Bible wants to repeat something for you so that you make, so that you understand the real issue in her heart. And it's the last verse. And she said, the glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. The name Ichabod is the glory is departed, not because Phinehas, her husband, was departed, not because Eli, the weak priest, was departed, but because the symbol of God's presence in Israel had been stolen and taken by the Philistines, and she dies. Ichabod, the glory is departed. Now, they had a lot of noise, but the glory had departed. They had a lot of unity, their voices rang out together, but the glory had departed. There are many churches in this nation. We call ourselves a Christian nation. But the glory of God's presence, which in the New Testament is called His candlestick in a church, has been taken out of most. They're loud. They have many in their pews. They may be unified behind one charismatic type leader. But the glory is gone. The candlestick of the Lord Jesus Christ, by His Spirit, inhabiting an assembly of saints where He is moving each of them 
to the greater glory and praise of God and the profit of their lives together and their understanding of Scriptures, that is pulled out. Just as Jesus threatened and warned the church at Ephesus that if you do not repent, I'll remove your candlestick. And then all that is left is a carcass because the body without the Spirit is dead. You have a carcass, a shell. Noise, yes. Amplifiers, yes. Some measure of unity, yes. Unity around a man. Unity around a man-made religion. But the glory is gone. The glory is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we measure the presence of the Holy Spirit by the level of righteousness and holiness in a church. Not just in its worship, but mainly in the lives of the people that make up the church. The church isn't a building, and the church isn't just its assemblies. The church is a body of saints that Jesus Christ inhabits by His Spirit, and how they live the 168 hours of a week turn them into a temple that is glorious in the sight of God, and He has His Spirit among them. We can't make up for the lack of a spirit by noise, volume, more music, more entertainment. Nothing can make up for that. And so many efforts are made to make up for it. Israel tried to make up for it with the ark. The Jews tried to make up for it with the temple. What are you trying to make up for it with? What are you doing thinking that God is pleased by your life even though you have unconfessed sins, your marriage, your relationship with your children, your financial management, and the other part, your time management, does not match up with what is taught in the Bible, does not match up with what's been taught from this pulpit, and yet you think, you presume that God is pleased because you come in here, because you put something in the box, because you sing, he is not impressed. You have brought upon yourself greater judgment and greater responsibility than if you weren't here. Because Jesus Christ said, I would rather have you cold or hot, but I hate lukewarm, and I'll spew you out of my mouth. And he spewed Israel out of his mouth for seven months as they lost the Ark of the Covenant. May God bless you to remember the lesson, and it's in the third verse, that when you do self-examination, do not make up for a lack of personal righteousness with more public performance. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.